On July 6, 1535, Sir Thomas More was led from his cell to his execution. And when he got to the execution block, he was allowed to say a few brief words. And so he told the rather large crowd that had gathered, he asked them to pray for, for himself, and that he promised to pray for them in the next life. And then he told the crowd those famous last words of his, I die the king's good servant and God's first. And then he knelt down and prayed the words of Psalm 51, uh, traditionally called the Miserere, beginning with the words, Have mercy on me, O God. Shortly thereafter, he was martyred for the faith and granted his eternal reward. I know I've told the story of St. Thomas More's execution before, but I mention it again because it's a beautiful example of the principle St. Peter articulates in our first reading. We must obey God rather than men. Thomas More would rather obey God than go along with Henry VIII's illicit breaking away from the church so that he could divorce Catherine of Aragon and marry Anne Boleyn. But I could imagine an objection, someone saying, Thomas More was obeying the Pope. The Pope is a man, so how can you say he's obeying God? It's a decent objection. The answer is God has always willed to work through intermediaries. He has often in salvation history delegated authority to a man. Think of Moses. Moses receives the law from God. Moses is given the task of teaching and authoritatively interpreting the law for the people and then judging cases of breaking the law for the people. And this was for an entire nation. It was something that would be too much for one man. So in time, 70 God-fearing elders were deputized, so to speak, to help Moses in this task. Later, Israel would have kings who would fulfill this role. And after the Babylonian exile, when Israel returned from that, they didn't have a king. But around 3rd or 4th century BC, they had something of a high court called the Sanhedrin, which we hear about also in the first reading. There were 71 members, hearkening back to Moses plus the 70 elders. And these members were, they were elders of the chief families, they were the high priests, they were scribes who were scholars and lawyers uh, who, who were experts in the law of God. And they exercised this authority over God's people. Even when Rome took over Jerusalem, Rome allowed the Sanhedrin to have authority in civil and religious matters. Of course, if you were following in the Passion, they weren't allowed to execute somebody. They couldn't execute Christ without Pontius Pilate going along with it. But they could punish people who violated the law without any appealing to Rome and everything but executing someone. And Jesus himself even acknowledges the authority of the Sanhedrin in Matthew chapter 23, where he says that the scribes, they sit on the chair of Moses. So the people should listen to what they're saying. But he says, don't follow their example because they don't practice what they preach. Now, Jesus is the fulfillment of the old law. 
And he gives a share of his authority to the apostles. The apostles are the new leadership of God's people. And to the apostles, Jesus gave to all of them the power to bind and loose, to authoritatively interpret and teach the fullness of God's law, the fullness of God's truth. And as we saw in last week's gospel, Jesus, when he rises from the grave, he gives to the apostles the power and the authority to forgive sins, something that the Pharisees would tell you only God can do. That's right, only God can do it, but he's given this authority and power to these men and to their successors. Moreover, Peter has a unique role among the apostles. In Matthew 16, he alone is given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And we see Peter's unique authority and role uh, emphasized in our gospel and reaffirmed by Christ. Our gospel lists Peter first among all the apostles. That is almost always the case in the New Testament when there's a list of apostles. Peter is the one who takes the initiative to go fishing. The others follow him. When they have a net filled to the brim with 153 fish, the other apostles can, can't even drag it ashore. And then Peter by himself goes and drags it ashore. After having breakfast, Peter has a conversation with our Lord where his threefold profession of love for Christ undoes his threefold denial on the night our Lord was betrayed. Peter is then confirmed after each profession of love as the chief shepherd of the flock of God. Because Jesus says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, etc. Peter is the church's first pope. And that word pope, we don't see in our gospel, it comes from the Greek word papas, which is a child's word for his or her father. The English equivalent would be like papa or dad or dada or something like that. Peter is confirmed as the father figure over God's people. And the apostles and Peter, when they die, someone else fills their office. Peter's the first pope. The apostles are the first bishops. In our first reading, though, what we see is a showdown between the old leadership of God's people and the new. And as one would expect, the Sanhedrin wasn't going to recognize the authority of the apostles. Peter tells them we must obey God rather than men. It's a subtle way of saying God's authority no longer resides with you. God has given that authority to us. Nonetheless, the Sanhedrin, backed by Rome, orders them to stop speaking in the name of Jesus. And our first reading skips over this detail for some reason, but they also have them flogged, publicly whipped. The Sanhedrin has the apostles whipped as punishment. With Rome's power behind them, the Sanhedrin can inflict pain on the apostles, but they've lost their authority. The Sanhedrin, even Rome, won't be able to stop God's people led by the apostles. You know, our gospel ends with Jesus speaking kind of cryptically about how Peter will die. Peter will die a martyr's death. As St. Thomas More did. Peter died crucified, but upside down because he said he wasn't worthy to die as our Lord did. He died crucified in the year 64, 65, 66 AD, somewhere in there, in the city of Rome, in a racetrack, 
on a part uh, on a hill in Rome called the Vatican Hill. I'm sure that sounds familiar because that's the place, the place where Peter was martyred is the site of St. Peter's Basilica. The Sanhedrin ceased to exist around 70 AD. Rome fell 1,500 years ago, but today at the site of Peter's martyrdom, his 265th successor, Pope Francis, lives and preaches the gospel and shepherds well over a billion souls throughout the world. There are at least two takeaways I can think of from these readings. First, we have to let them strengthen our faith in the church, the Catholic Church founded by Jesus Christ. The church Christ founded is like the net Peter used in our gospel today, completely filled with souls gathered throughout time and history, but it will not tear, it will not break. The church will be brought to the shores of eternity at the end of the age. The church endures in spite of sufferings and persecutions from the outside, in spite of sins and scandals of her members and her leadership, which we are unfortunately all too familiar with in our day, in spite of complacency, lukewarmness, and mediocrity. The church endures because she is not a man-made institution. Yes, she's comprised of human beings who are fallen, who are sinners in need of God's mercy, but Christ also promised that the gates of hell will not prevail over his church. And he sent the Holy Spirit to guide the church in all truth, to authoritatively teach those truths necessary for salvation in every generation, and dispense the sacraments, these mystical fonts of Christ's saving grace. So that first takeaway then is we need to allow these readings to strengthen our faith in the church Christ founded. And secondly, hopefully we are inspired to bear witness to all the truths of the faith, including the truth about the church. We may not be called to shed our blood for faith like St. Thomas More did or St. Peter did, but we are all called to bear witness to the truth of the faith. And one of those truths of the faith is the truth that Christ founded the church, and that in the Catholic Church is the fullness of the divinely revealed truth and the fullness of his sanctifying grace. That's not a popular statement to make today. But like the apostles and St. Peter, like St. Thomas More, let us keep in mind that we must obey God rather than men. So let us never cower when confronted with the relativism of our age. May our faith be strengthened by the endurance of Christ's church. And may we always be faithful witnesses to the truth that following Peter is the sure path to following Christ.